Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Health Canada says the Pfizer vaccine can now be given to children 12 years and older. Now, that sounds like amazing news, but is there anything we should be concerned about? Canada will have received 6.4 million AstraZeneca vaccines by the end of June, with some of those doses coming from the UN-backed initiative known as COVAX. Why is Canada still using COVAX? And a new survey from Angus Reid found that many Canadians believe the culture surrounding hockey has issues with misogyny, racism, and inclusion. Sean Fitzgerald, senior writer with The Athletic, joins us to talk about that. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. One of the big stories here is the fact that uh, it appears now that uh, children are going to be eligible for vaccination. Health Canada's chief medical officer advisor says they have a vaccine for children and teens. Uh, they say this is a critical part of Canada's plan to battle COVID-19. Terry Pedwell has some details. Health Canada has approved the use of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine in children as young as 12 following a flawless clinical trial in the U.S., Dr. Supriya Sharma says about one-fifth of all cases of COVID-19 in Canada have occurred in children and teenagers, and while most don't get seriously ill, they can spread it to more vulnerable family members. Sharma says studies are underway for use of the Pfizer vaccine and others on children under 12 years, but the earliest results are not expected until September, when the new school year will have already begun. Terry Pedro, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. Now, there's a lot to unpack about this, and, and on the surface, it seems like a really good news story, and it probably is. Uh, but there are some people that are asking some questions about this, and I think we need to delve into this. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Dr. Martha Fulford. Uh, Dr. Fulford is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at McMaster Children's Hospital and Hamilton Health Sciences. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us again. Well, thank you for asking me. Let me ask, first of all, your, your thoughts on, on the, extending the vaccination program to children. Well, teenagers, of course, 12 to 15, yeah, the Pfizer yeah. vaccine was already approved for 16 and up. I think we were heading that way. And again, the decision on, on who and how and to roll out a vaccine also depends on what exactly we're trying to achieve uh, overall. The vaccination of adults, particularly vulnerable adults, remains by far and away the most important intervention because that is what is preventing uh, very effectively the uh, hospitalization, the severe disease, and the deaths. So it is our our seniors, it is uh, adults with comorbidities, risk factors who are at risk from COVID. With that population vaccinated, we will have essentially uh, controlled the, the, the number of people with severe disease, at no point will we ever have zero risk. That's not realistic. We've never achieved that with any um, other respiratory virus. But we will have certainly brought it down to a very, very controllable risk. So the, the vaccination of adults uh, makes a lot of sense, both in terms of the effect of the vaccine and what we're aiming to achieve, which is you know, no, no severe disease and, and minimizing uh, the people who might actually succumb to, to the virus. With, with, with teenagers and with children, it's a different conversation because, of course, I think we all know now that they are not at risk uh, of severe disease. It's not that it will never happen, but the risks are really extraordinarily low and less than we see with other respiratory viruses. So then the question uh, about whether or not to vaccinate teenagers is a, a much more nuanced conversation. So do we vaccinate all of them? That's certainly not a priority, I wouldn't have thought. And, and, but there are some 
certain teenagers who maybe have high-risk medical conditions or teenagers who live in homes with high-risk adults and the adults weren't able to be vaccinated. So I think there are certain situations where it makes a lot of sense. But given that children are not at high risk of severe disease, and also despite this, you know, sort of somewhat misunderstanding the role of schools, if we look at the numbers in schools, schools weren't transmitting. When we closed our schools, school-associated rates were about 1% compared to 10% in the community. So I'm, I have no objection to, to rolling out a vaccine to younger people. I would just stress very strongly that this is not a prerequisite for, for children and teenagers getting back to normal activities. Outdoor activities can resume, schools can reopen very safely with, with the question of vaccines being a separate question. And that's because, of course, the vulnerable adults will have already been vaccinated. So the protection for those who are at risk has already, is already happening. I know some people may think we're getting into semantics, and but there's an element to this that I want to talk about with you as well. For instance, the reason why the vaccinations actually started probably sooner than they might have ordinarily was because of the use of the emergency use authorization, of course, and that's Correct. what Pfizer applied for to say, you know, in other words, and the basic argument here, I know there's probably 10 pages of reasons why, but the basic argument is the greater good uh, overrides the possibility of, of risk. And, and, and that's, I guess, one of the guidelines, isn't it, doctor, for just about the release of any treatment or, or methodology or vaccine in this case? Yeah, so emergency use authorization uh, is when a government uh, approves an inter- a medical intervention before all the final, final studies uh, mm-hmm. have been completed and all the follow-up, because a study has a limited number of people. And so, for example, uh, the the study that Pfizer did with with teenagers was just it was over slightly over two thousand children. Uh, So that will help us confirm that it is safe and that children mount an immune response. The challenge with studying uh, the vaccine in, in young people is that the number of adverse events from the disease is so rare it's difficult to say that we need an emergency use authorization, I guess, mm-hmm. yeah. because we, what we have is a, is a situation where adults, the, the question was clear-cut. The benefits of the vaccine and, and uh, the emergency use authorization was unequivocally in favor of vaccinating. And, and vaccinating adults, particularly older adults and vulnerable adults, there is no question that this has had a dramatic reduction in severe disease and death. Mm -hmm. We won't actually be able to show that with teenagers. So I am comfortable that the vaccine will will be safe. What nobody can say at this point is whether or not uh, we will be seeing uh, adverse events in teenagers. My my sense is that if we do, the numbers will be very low. And I'm extrapolating from from what we're seeing in adults. I mean, these have been very safe vaccines, but as we know, there are always at least some risk of adverse effects from an intervention, and, and what we want is our intervention to provide far more good than harm, which is true of any medical intervention, of course. 
Absolutely. And, and by the way, for the, our listeners, I, 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 we're not going down the road here thinking, hey, kids are immune to this, so we don't need to do this. So the, that, that's taking it to the extreme, and I think it's a, a ridiculous argument. But the, the, your point is well taken here, that uh, if, if you invoke the emergency use authorization because there was an imminent crisis, and there was with adults, and there was evidence of that, wasn't there, doctor? Look at the ICUs, look yeah, at the number absolutely. of cases. Absolutely. But we're not seeing that with children. So should they be up on this priority list right now? I mean, not to say they shouldn't be vaccinated, but is it is it is it doesn't seem to have the same urgency as as the adult vaccination program does exactly and that's what a lot of us are saying i think we're all in favor of vaccines at least the infectious disease physicians we're all in favor of vaccination but i wouldn't have put them as a priority and i particularly would not have put vaccination as a prerequisite for anything for for mm-hmm. young people and the reason i say that is i i would be for example reopening schools which um I, th- I think many of us are advocating for can happen regardless of vaccination status. The children are not at risk from severe disease and COVID. Teachers uh, are now allowed to be vaccinated. We don't need our, our children and teenagers to be vaccinated for them to go back to school. These are two separate conversations. So should we vaccinate children as we get more data? I, I have no discomfort with, with offering the vaccine to, to the 12 to 15-year-old age group. But are they a priority group? No, they're not. Our priority group are the people who are landing in hospital. It's the people who are at high risk. It's our essential workers. Uh, and, and, you know, it's also the people who are at high risk and the essential workers in other countries because, of course, COVID isn't just a Canadian issue. It's a worldwide issue. And if we are hoping to have the world under sort of more normal circumstances, we, we also need to look at what's happening beyond Canadian borders. Exactly. And, and, and again, the corollary to that is, as you say, uh, there are teens and, and young children, of course, who have special medical conditions. They should be 100%. moved to the front of the list. Absolutely. Because of, of their con- yeah. You know, yeah. And this is the conversation is, is deciding uh, how to roll it out and ensuring that the people who really are a priority group are, are, are vaccinated. And, and that, for me, would actually be including giving the second vaccine, fully vaccinating um, all of our high-risk adults and high-risk workers, mm-hmm. because that really is what's going to uh, give us the single best control of what's going on, and, and it will be the single most important intervention to ensuring that our hospitals aren't overwhelmed, which is, as we, it's hard to, hard to forget, but that was and, and remains our main goal, of course. Sure. ensuring that when people do get sick, we, we are able to provide uh, the best possible care for them. I read a piece, uh, an article written by uh, some, actually, the doctors down in the States, Johns Hopkins and, and a couple of other places. I'm, I'm sure you've seen this as well. That uh, tells me that the, uh, actually, the vaccine, vaccine trials for COVID-19 are, are also underway uh, for children as young as six months. Uh, given what we've just talked about here, is, is, is that really where we should be looking right now? Is, is that going to be necessary? Well, again, I think it depends on what uh, sort of societal objectives are. If our societal objective is to minimize severe disease, hospitalizations, and death, and learn to coexist with a respiratory virus that at that point will not be dangerous, then we don't need to vaccinate children. And and I would point to other countries, Israel, United Kingdom, and United States, Mm -hmm. where the numbers have plummeted and they're essentially reopening with, with no vaccination 16 under group. If our objective as a society is to try to somehow eradicate uh, 
COVID, then that's a different conversation. I, I my personal preference is the former. Uh, I think we need to balance uh, our interventions with with resumption of normal activities. And as I say, I am extremely pro-vaccine in term, and particularly for adults and and those who are vulnerable. But I'm equally uh, passionate about ensuring that our children are allowed to resume normal lives, and that means reopening schools, reopening all outdoor activities, reopening uh, access to sports. And and I would be, uh, it's a personal opinion, but I would be extremely unhappy that if those were delayed because of a vaccine program, again, stressing that this is not the group who are at risk from COVID. And even if there are some children who might transmit it, this is really not a concern anymore if those to whom it might be transmitted are protected. So it's a complicated conversation, and, and I think it, it, it basically behooves as a society to have a really honest conversation about what exactly our endpoints or what we're trying to achieve is, uh, what, what, what our goals are. Absolutely, and, and, and it's, it's a very germane point, I think, to the discussion because we've already heard about some government officials, including our federal health minister, uh, talking about, well, they don't like to use the, the term vaccine passports anymore, but variations on that theme. In other words, before you get on a plane, you've got to prove that you were vaccinated. We're not there yet, but they're having discussions with that and other G7 nations. I wouldn't want to see that uh, you know, filter all the way down to uh, uh, little Jason can't play soccer this year because he doesn't have his vaccination form. Uh, that, that seemed to me to, to, to be superb and probably irrelevant, wouldn't it be? Uh, totally irrelevant. And, and the whole vaccine immunity or for vaccine passports is an interesting question because people who have had COVID, we're learning, actually mount a very good immune response. And so, I mean, vaccine passport or, or do we need to show that we're immune? It's, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. And I'm not so straightforward. And do you mandate this for people who aren't going to be at particular risk for, for severe disease. It's, I, I think that this is a very complicated conversation with a lot of probably unintended consequences. Uh, it, you know, and, and again, how do you balance our need to control you know, COVID so that we don't have our hospital systems overwhelmed again with, with maybe unreasonable expectations in terms of, of what we're aiming for? So we're sort of jumping ahead, I think, in terms of some of these requirements. And how are we going to balance that with, say, countries that are not going to require vaccine passports, as is already true in in quite a few regions of the United States? So it's complicated. I mean, this is well beyond my area of expertise, how one is going to decide at the international or national level Mm -hmm. uh, what requirements are going to be put in place. I think that as we start to look into the how it's going to be implemented, how you're going to prove it, what's going to be adequate proof of immunization is going to be, uh, I, I will keep coming back to the word, I think it's very complicated. I don't think it's going to be as straightforward as it appears to be on the surface. Well, we'll follow that discussion. Uh, but as for the program, and as we know, it is going to start rolling out here, as you mentioned, for teens mm-hmm. uh, in this country and uh, probably in some other areas as well. Uh, is it a fair assumption, then, to just basically categorize this as a, probably not a top priority, but it wouldn't hurt? Exactly. I, I Absolutely. Anybody who wants their, their teenager vaccinated, I have no objection to this happening. But this should be a separate and parallel conversation 
to resuming normal activities for children. These are not tied. And, and that, for me, is the real key because I'm already hearing sort of certain people somehow trying to link the vaccination of teenagers mm-hmm. return to school. And, and a lot of us are saying, no, 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 no. Vaccinating teenagers, safe, effective, let the studies finish, and I have no concerns with, with us going ahead and vaccinating teenagers. But this is a separate conversation than allowing our schools to reopen outdoor activities to resume, sports to resume. These, these should not be tied together. Absolutely. Doctor, it's always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it. A very important my, issue. We need pleasure. to, I think, have our eyes wide open. Take care, doctor. Stay well. Okay. Dr. Martha Fulford, of course, uh, from uh, McMaster Children's Hospital. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the newer developments, of course, is a discussion that's going on uh, worldwide, but specifically in the United States right now, uh, and it has to do with intellectual property for the vaccines that are being developed. And in an effort to end this COVID pandemic sooner rather than later, it seems the Biden administration appears to be willing to waive intellectual property waivers on vaccine production. Reggie Giacchini from Global News in Washington has the details. A statement from the U.S. Trade Office cites extraordinary times calling for extraordinary measures and explains that while the U.S. is typically protective of intellectual property, the global interest in eradicating the threats from COVID-19 is now taking priority. The Biden administration says it will work with the World Trade Organization to begin the process of unlocking the patents for vaccines. It notes that text agreements will take time due to the complex nature of issues involved. It comes as the U.S. has essentially secured enough vaccine for its adult population with a goal of 70% full vaccination for July 4th, roughly 165 million adults. USTR says that as it works to release vaccine IP, it will also work to increase the raw materials needed to produce the vaccines. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. This is all part of the discussion and debate, of course, about uh, getting the vaccines out to the places around the world uh, that really need them. And, and uh, I know that a number of people were kind of caught off guard by the change of uh, idea by the Biden administration. Let's talk about that and the implications. And, and obviously, this is going to, uh, I think, probably uh, morph into a discussion about COVAX, too, the overriding agency about that. Joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Dr. Jason Nickerson. Dr. Nickerson is a humanitarian affairs advisor for Doctors Without Borders. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me back. I mean, right off the bat, we'll ask you about the uh, the Biden uh, decision yesterday to uh, to actually waive this whole idea about intellectual properties. This is rather unusual, but is it necessary? Well, it, I mean, the short answer is yes, absolutely. Um, you, you know, I think that, as you say, many of us were, were caught a bit off guard by uh, the, the, the change in policy uh, last evening, where the, the Biden administration is coming out and saying that they would, in fact, support uh, a waiver of intellectual property rules for COVID vaccines. Um, and, you know, just to sort of emphasize, it appears that their position is, is limited to, to COVID vaccines, whereas uh, countries and, and uh, organizations like ours, Doctors Without Borders, have been pushing for a waiver of intellectual property rules for all COVID-19 technologies. So vaccines, uh, therapeutics, uh, which are, you know, drugs for treating uh, people who are infected with the virus, as well as diagnostic tests and so on. Um, you know, no matter uh, what the technology is, I think it's quite clear that uh, we need a massive scaling up um, of the manufacturing of uh, vaccines, of, of drugs, of, of diagnostic tests and so on, and, and getting uh, patents and intellectual property rights uh, just out of, out of the way. 
uh, and removing those as a barrier to, to scaling up that manufacturing is, is an absolutely essential uh, first step. So um, this is a, a positive move, uh, I think, for, coming from the United States, which, of course, is, is one of the world's largest economies uh, and home to a lot of the, the pharmaceutical companies who are holding on to uh, these, these intellectual property rights. So hopefully this is a, a first step uh, on the road to, to scaling up and diversifying this manufacturing capacity that we need. It really is. The intellectual property laws, such as they are, is, is a real barrier here. For people that may not understand the logistics, I guess the simple version of it is uh, the Pfizer's, Moderna's, J&J, and, and, and AstraZeneca basically hold the rights to, to what they've developed here, and, and no one else can use that for well, what I heard was 30 to 50 years. I mean, I guess it depends on, on, on the different contracts they've signed. But uh, and, and the other side of that, of course, is if you waive those rights, uh, that allows other companies to start manufacturing and that's where you get your less expensive generic drugs that are having the same effect on on the human body as as the other ones that were developed it's a huge huge thing and and i i, I guess given the severity and and the urgency of what's going on here doctor uh, you know with this this crisis is not going away anytime soon the sooner we can get more people vaccinated the better off everyone's going to be well i think there's a few things that we need to understand so so first of all the world is in uh, a situation where the av- currently available global supply is unable to meet the, the global demand and, and mm-hmm. the global need. Um, so there is simply just more more need and more demand for, for COVID vaccines in particular um, than there is supply. Um, so the only way that we can get around this is, is to uh, in- increase the available supply. There is no single pharmaceutical company and no single manufacturer on the planet today, and, and we've talked about this before, that is capable of, of scaling up uh, and, and meeting that demand uh, in, you know, today. And, and although there has been a, a, a massive increase, truly, in, in the capacity uh, to manufacture vaccines, what we haven't seen is a diversification of that manufacturing capacity. So what I mean by that is that the factories uh, that are producing vaccines are still actually quite concentrated in a small number of, of countries. Um, and that has major implications when you consider that uh, you know, effectively, uh, the entire uh, continental Africa has very limited uh, manufacturing capacity uh, today uh, to produce these vaccines and is effectively dependent on exporting countries uh, to to export vaccine doses. And this is also true of, of even countries like like Canada. Right? I mean, there are many, many countries that find themselves in the same situation of being almost entirely dependent uh, on exporting countries uh, for their, their supply of, of COVID vaccines. So this is a significant problem. We need to increase the manufacturing capacity. We just need more doses being produced to meet global demand. Um, but we also need to diversify that manufacturing to different places um, so that we don't find ourselves in this situation of, of being you know, so dependent on, on a small number of, of exporters. Um, but coming back to the, the issue at hand, of uh, removing or waiving intellectual property rules on COVID vaccines. I think it's important to understand that there, there are no magic bullet solutions uh, to, to this problem. You know, we've seen patents uh, and intellectual property rights have been a barrier to uh, ensuring access to affordable medicines and, and vaccines for a very, very long time. Um, and a patent is effectively a, 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 a reward. It's a, it, it grants a, a monopoly to the patent holder uh, to do exactly what you said, which is to, you know, effectively limit the competition uh, for a given 
drug or vaccine uh, on on the market. So as long as a patent is in place, then there can be no subsequent entrance or, or generic uh, version of that drug or vaccine that, that comes onto the market. Um, but the, the vaccine manufacturing process uh, is, is a very complex one. Um, and so intellectual property rights, I think these are the, the obvious thing to, to get out of the way. Um, you know, historically, as I say, we know that they've been a barrier. Um, so what the waiver is seeking to do is to simply recognize that fact and say, look, we know that this has been a problem in the past. There's an abundance of reasons to believe that uh, intellectual property rights are going to be a barrier to, to scaling up and diversifying manufacturing for, for vaccines today. Let's get them out of the way. But there are still many, many other issues that we need to to tackle and address from, you, you know, the tech transfer. So transferring uh, the effectively the recipe and, and the know-how of how to manufacture these vaccines to other, to, uh, other manufacturers. Um, as well as addressing shortages of, of raw materials and the essential starting supplies to be able to produce this. So it's, a, it's actually a very, very complicated problem. Um, but uh, moving towards uh, waiving intellectual property uh, rules and, and rights on these vaccines is absolutely an essential first step. So it's a positive development, but there's still more work to be done for sure. Absolutely. And, and as expected, of course, there is a pushback from the pharmaceutical companies about this because uh, they, these are all for-profit companies. Let's not forget that. Uh, and they're worried about their bottom line, although I don't think they have any worries about that. And it's it, I think it's also noteworthy. Uh, we had a discussion with a, a lawyer about this the other day, and you still pay a licensing fee for this. I mean, it's not as if the guy said, okay, give me all that information now. You guys get nothing. They're, they're, they're going to be fine, thank you very much, the, the pharmaceutical companies. they you know None of them are going to be putting the for sale sign up anytime soon. They're, they're going to be at... But when you get to that point, though, doctor, and I'm glad you move into that area about dissemination of the vaccines and where they're going to be produced, of course, is, is part of that. Uh, but let's talk about the role that COVAX plays in doing that. And Canada, of course, is a member of that. Uh, basically, I, I, I guess the, the, the purpose base is to make sure that everybody who needs these vaccines in all four quarters of the world get them. Uh, how are we doing in that? Well, unfortunately, we're, we're witnessing a massive inequity in, in action. Um, so to date, it's, it's less than 1% of all uh, COVID-19 vaccines that have been administered in low-income countries. So it's well over 80% of, of all vaccines um, that have been administered in high-income countries or, or upper-middle-income countries. So, you know, quite truthfully, we're seeing uh, large numbers of, of high-risk people, uh, particularly in low-income countries, who remain uh, unprotected through through vaccination and, and who today just don't have access to uh, these vaccines. This is a, an alarm that uh, we and many other organizations have been sounding since the start of this pandemic. Uh, unfortunately, it's it's an inequity in access that's uh, a, a, a bit structurally ingrained in the way that we develop and, and deliver new medicines and new vaccines. Um, so COVAX is, as you say, effectively the mechanism uh, that the world has agreed upon uh, for purchasing and, and sharing vaccines, um, particularly uh, as a mechanism of access for uh, low and, and middle income countries. Um, it's basically a pooled purchasing mechanism uh, that, mm -hmm. that creates a, a market incentive for, for pharmaceutical companies. Um, but what we have seen is that the, the allure of, of bilateral agreements that have been signed with high income countries that frankly are, are just willing to pay a higher price uh, to, to get to the front of the line has uh, effectively monopolized the, the availability of vaccine doses. So, you know, we're coming back again to this problem of there's there's just not enough uh, doses that exist in the world today 
to be able to satisfy uh, the you know countries willing to to pay a higher price to get to the front of the line, as well as Covax, which is the sort of predominant way in which and most low-income countries around the world are are going to be procuring vaccines. So we have a huge access problem. Yeah, uh, and I'm seeing a lot of comments about this on social media, and and I, I guess even when the announcement was made, about Canada is actually accessing uh, some of uh, of that supply, of course, from Covax, uh, and and uh, has received an awful lot of criticism. In other words, almost some people accusing them of jumping the queue that, that hey, that stuff should be going to third world countries, not to Canada. Uh, but by definition of Covax, of course, all participating countries, uh, regardless of income levels, have equal access to these vaccines once they are developed. Well, the vaccines have been developed. Uh, it was and and of course. Of course, we have problems with supply chain, and those are well documented right now, too. But is it was it morally right for Canada to be asking for some of these things when so many other parts of the world needed a lot more than we do? Well, I think the, the short answer is that Canada should be sitting these rounds out. Um, Canada is correct in saying that uh, as a participating country, so as a purchasing country in COVAX, and, and Canada plays both roles. Canada is one of the largest donors to COVAX, which is a mm-hmm. good thing. Um, and Canada is also participating in COVAX as a purchasing country, which, you know, quite honestly, is is also a good thing. Um, this is the way that the mechanism was designed. Uh, it was intended to be the way in which countries would pool their resources and pool their purchasing power um, and then uh, share vaccines to be able to to prioritize and vaccinate the highest risk people uh, everywhere on the planet uh, as, as a matter of priority. So this is, you know, people living with chronic health conditions. These are frontline healthcare workers and other people who are at uh, significant risk of either contracting COVID-19 or developing severe uh, consequences as a result of uh, becoming infected. Now, that's unfortunately not how uh, things have, have rolled out. I think it's a good thing that Canada is is playing both of these roles. And I think Canada should be procuring through the COVAX mechanism. The, the problem is that high-income countries, including Canada, but also many other countries, have then gone and, as I say, struck these bilateral purchase agreements, which effectively compete with COVAX in, in its ability to, to secure the number of doses uh, that it requires to to deliver on uh, this global uh, purchasing agreement. So, you know, Canada has has signed uh, enough uh, agreements to to secure more doses than we require. Um, it's true that that we have faced supply uh, problems, but again, this is this is a global problem. This is not something that's necessarily unique to Canada. Um, but we can't ignore the fact that there are millions of doses that are, are coming into to, uh, Canada every week at, at this point. Um, and that's simply not the reality for, for most countries around the world. So I think that uh, taking doses from uh, the COVAX pool at this point, the, it's very clear that those are doses that would otherwise uh, be used in, in low-income countries that aren't able to benefit uh, from these bilateral agreements in the way that Canada has. So, no, Canada should not be taking uh, these these doses. Those are, are doses that should be uh, directed towards low-income countries that are, are uh, as I say, almost entirely dependent on this as their mechanism of accessing these vaccines. 
a valid point, and I think very germane too, of the what Canada being a contributor. Canada is an active member in COVAX. I mean, we do produce vaccines in this country. I guess we've tended to forget that with all the argument going on about uh, the COVID vaccines. We, but a number of different uh, diseases that are still prevalent in the world, the vaccines are being developed, and in, in Canada is contributing to COVAX that way. But that's this is the argument that I heard. Uh, you know that that hey, it's time for us to back off here, and make sure. I mean, I, I, are we forgetting? I guess, doctor, that what I think you told us months ago about this is that this virus is not going away, this pandemic is not going away until everybody who needs a vaccination gets a vaccination. We're not just talking North America, we're talking globally. Well, I mean, absolutely. It's been said many, many times before that, you know, the pandemic doesn't end here until it ends everywhere. Um, and, you know, we, we have to remember that this is a, a, a virus that started as a small cluster of, of respiratory infections in another country and has spread uh, to every country on, on the planet. So, you know, I think that it's, it's an illustration of the fact that we live in an interconnected world. Uh, public health doesn't uh, doesn't know borders, uh, if, if you will. Um, and so, you know, this is a moment for uh, for, for global solidarity. Um, and we, we need to have an, an outlook on global public health that extends beyond our borders. That's, you know, a bit of a self-interested argument, but um, it's also clearly the, the correct moral argument uh, as well. Um, ensuring that people everywhere have access to the, the medical tools, whether that's vaccines or diagnostic tests or, or uh, drugs and, and other therapeutics, um, to keep themselves healthy and to keep themselves protected is absolutely the, the correct thing to do as a matter of global public health, but it's also just morally the, the correct thing to do as well. And, and as you mentioned, Doctors Without Borders is one of the organizations that's actually been lobbying and, and asking for this to happen for some time. This goes long before COVID because of some of the other concerns and, and challenges uh, that they're dealing with. Uh, where's the brick wall coming from? Because you're not getting much response from, from anybody about this. Well, I, it's, it's difficult to say. You know, I think that the, the world has created a system of, of drug development that, uh, you know, we've, we've all in, in high-income countries sort of been complacent about in, in many ways. Um, but I think that there's a number of things that are, are happening at the same time um, that are forcing uh, those of us, you know, patients, people working in the healthcare system and, and politicians and, and policymakers to, to carefully scrutinize and, and to look at the system that we've created and to seriously question, you know, whose benefits are being served here. We can't I I ignore the fact that there are, are people in this country, uh, in Canada, uh, who simply can't afford the medicines that they need. These are medicines that exist. They're, they're available on the market and they are simply priced out of reach for what uh, patients and, and health systems are able to, to afford. This is a problem that we have seen as Doctors Without Borders working in, in low-income countries for the past 50 years. You know, we have seen our patients systematically excluded from being able to access the drugs that they need for diseases like HIV, tuberculosis, hepatitis C, and, and many, many others simply because, you know, treatments uh, and, and vaccines exist, but they are simply priced out of reach of, of what people can afford. And those prices bear no relationship to the cost of developing them or, or manufacturing them. This is fundamentally a, a conversation around, you know, profits. Um, and so I think that, you know, prices is, is certainly one thing, but we're, we're also uh, now in a pandemic where, uh, you know, the, I, I think that the, the world is realizing that we haven't invested effectively in, in pandemic preparedness. 
you know, there's basically a market failure for, for pandemic preparedness because uh, in investing in vaccines and, and therapeutics for, you know, a, a, a virus that uh, we didn't know was, was going to explode in the way that it has, simply didn't represent a, a profitable investment. And so there wasn't, uh, you know, a, a clear sort of investment in, in the science that we needed. Um, and this is a story that plays out time and time again. You know, there are many, many uh, pathogens that have uh, very real potential to, to enact tremendous public health harms, um, for which there's very little investment, whether that's lassa fever or even something like e- Ebola. So I think that collectively, all of these uh, data points are, are starting to to paint a, a broader picture. And I, I think that we're preparing ourselves uh, in, in Canada and around the world to have a, a much different question, uh, conversation uh, about, you know, how are we developing the medicines and the vaccines that we need? And how are we preparing ourselves to be able to respond to, to emerging public health threats? Um, and really, I think what we need to prioritize is, is putting lives over profits in this instance. Exactly. Uh, We have to leave it there. We're just about out of time. Always great to get your perspective on this, Doctor. Thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Dr. Jason Nickerson, of course, advisor with Doctors Without Borders. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Troubling story that I wanted to get into today. Uh, Without doing a whole lot in the way of minor hockey these days, of course, or minor sports of any kind, simply because of the pandemic and, uh, and the lockdown orders that are going on. But uh, we are slowly but surely going to get back into this. And uh, a new survey has found that many Canadians uh, believe that the culture surrounding hockey, and we're talking about minor hockey here too, by the way, uh, concerns misogyny, racism, and uh, inclusion. This Angus Reid did this uh, survey, and they revealed that hockey remains an integral part of Canada's cultural fabric. I think we all knew that, didn't we? But what about this concern about things that, well, you don't necessarily associate uh, with hockey, or do we? Joining us to talk about this is Sean Fitzgerald. Sean, of course, is a senior national writer with The Athletic. Uh, great to have you back on the show, Sean. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. We've had uh, discussions about this in the past, about racism and, and, and a number of concerns at the pro level. I mean, you know, there's some stories. Wayne Simmons, of course, who's a Leaf now when he was playing for Philadelphia, uh, went through some horrendous experiences, of course, and, and related those. We've heard from other black athletes about this as well. Uh, and and it's, it's a concern for all of us, Sean. But uh, when you've got a survey like this that indicates that even in minor sports it seems to be a concern, is that surprising to you? No, um, not in minor hockey specifically. Uh, minor hockey is facing an existential crisis across Canada for accessibility and not just financial. We sometimes conflate, you know, money with diversity. It's not the same thing. Um, Hockey hasn't done a good enough job of bringing folks into the arena who aren't already there. So what you're getting is a, is a pretty white sport. Um, And and that's where this sort of thing can, can develop and breed over the years. And I mean, TSN's Rick Westhead has done some really phenomenal work on this over the last couple of years with, with pretty harsh, nasty cases, even in the Greater Toronto Hockey League. So, you know, you can think, oh, it's, it's not here, it's not Southern Ontario, it's, it's somewhere else. But no, it's, it's here too, and it's been documented pretty widely. But it's still going on, and I, I don't know what other jurisdictions. I know when my son was playing minor hockey in the Hamilton area, uh, the city had developed what they call a zero-tolerance policy. In other words, if there was somebody that was doing something untoward like this or yelling at the referees or using foul language, uh, they were banned from the arena uh, for a period of time, whatever the case may be, or the soccer pitch or wherever it was. Uh, I, I don't know that that's a deterrent because I didn't see it actually you know, enforced very often, but it, it seems as if we, we were trying to do something about this, but I don't think maybe we don't know what to do. 
Well, yeah. I mean, in, in the case of on-ice incidents, I mean, those can be pretty blatant. Um, mm-hmm. But again, if a referee doesn't catch it, if an adult, I guess for lack of a better term, in minor hockey doesn't catch it, um, then, then sometimes it might not even get reported. And that also doesn't account for some of the microaggressions that, you know, parents might come across, you know, gossip in the arena hallway, gossip in the lobby, you know, words thrown back and forth in a hallway away from the, you know, again, the adults and and other microaggressions that that would obviously fuel some of the findings in that Angus Reid survey um, and that wouldn't necessarily make it all the way to, you know, say the league convener or, or people in charge to address them directly. So what do we do to address this? I mean, you know, you can say all you want about these are the rules and regulations and, you know, we need to be good sports and all this sort of stuff too. Uh, but when they're talking about things like racism especially, and we can get into – I want to talk about the misogyny in just a second. Uh, if, if it's endemic in, 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 in the, the minor sports, in, and we're just talking about hockey here, but I'm sure that you could probably relate this to other sports as well. Uh, is, is it the players? Is it the kids? I mean, is it the adults? Is it, you know, we've all heard the wild stories about the, the crazy family, you know, members of the, you know, the mums and dads, the hockey mums and dads yelling obscenities at referees or yelling obscenities at some 12 year old kid that's playing against his, his child. Uh, is, is, is that the root cause here? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's all in, in parts and, I mean, it, I think it, I mean, to address it, I think it has to start with education, um, meaningful education, not necessarily just something that, you know, it's a half hour course online that coaches can do while they're also watching the Leaf game on in the background. Um, it has to be meaningful education. It also has to be meaningful change at the grassroots level. Now, again, I'm, this isn't to impugn volunteers at your local rinks. Those are the folks who, you know, I think, you know, a, a significant percentage of people love the game. Nobody's out here to, you know, ruin hockey culture or do any of the things that we're talking about. But, um, you know, volunteerism has been a challenge of getting new new people in there, of, of getting new perspectives and, and of sort of broadening the tent of the game. And I think that that's a huge issue that has to be overcome. It's an existential threat, as I talked about earlier, that if you don't, start changing and start making hockey more welcoming to more people, this game will be sort of thrown to the margins in broader Canadian society in the not so distant future. That if you are on the verge of becoming Canadian polo, where, you know, you only appeal to a certain subset of people, people who can afford it, people who feel welcome, then you're going to lose this, this hold, this this place in Canada that, you know, for generations we'd like to place hockey in, that it it's the bond, it's the tether, it's it's part of the fabric of what it is to be Canadian. When you start appealing to fewer and fewer Canadians, um, that becomes a real issue. So I think, you know, to combat what we're talking about here as well as that, you have to start getting folks into the rink, making them feel comfortable, making them feel welcome, and making the game more accessible. And when I say accessible, I don't mean just financial. No, but that is a key factor. And, and by the way, that was the takeaway in the book that you wrote about this too. And uh, no, I, I, well, I'll, I'll make the plug. You're too humble to do it yourself, Sean. But because it was essentially saying, if we don't change the culture, the culture is dying. And and I know that that's unthinkable for some people to think. Come on, Canada hockey, sure. Uh, but it's it's happening, and we see this happening. And, and financial accessibility is one part of this. But the other part of, it, of course, is inclusion. Uh, and that's why you get into things like some of the racist comments about people, whether they're Asian backgrounds 
problems, and God knows we're having a problem with that now, uh, uh, racial stereotypes and things of this nature, perpetuated by parents, hopefully not coaches, but probably some element like that too. The concern here is that even if they are reported, uh, what are the consequences? something like that i mean you'd like to think that you know for people that are going to be you know habitual uh, offenders uh that there'd be some form of consequence and and it's not like they can look at the national hockey league for guidance here because they don't seem to treat people that are egregious offenders to do much of the about what they're going on with too whether it's racial or whether it's uh, you know assaults on the ice or whatever the case might be uh we need a little form and function here don't we yeah i mean the things that happen on the ice in broad um, you know, view of everybody, referees, anything that's said loudly that can be reported and recorded, then yes, that's one thing. And there are punishments and there are, you know, there are protocols. That, you know, the GTHL, for example, the Greater Toronto Hockey League has in place. And, you know, I'm not as familiar with, you know, the bylaws of, of every minor hockey association in Ontario, but I would imagine that others have similar, similar actions in place. The challenge is, you know, when you're talking about these issues, when you're talking about racism in the game, when you're talking about misogyny in the game, it's not always those big dramatic events that unfold on the ice. Certainly they do exist and certainly they are terrible. Um, what we're talking about also is the microaggressions, the other things that, you know, make folks feel like others, quote, unquote, um, in and around the rink, in and around the team, um, that, you know, makes it less appealing, that makes it, you know, not fun to be a part of. And hockey should be fun. Hockey's a a great game and offers great things to the community. The challenge is, is, you know, that community is getting smaller and smaller and it's only representing a subset of Canadians increasingly. So how do you broaden that community and erase some of those challenges? Well, and we've seen this and I've heard this from other hockey parents, uh, that suggests, you know, when we talk about the dwindling culture and the subset that, that you, you wrote about in the book, uh, a part of that is because the kids themselves don't want to play anymore. I mean, they they get tired of it. They they, they hear the comments. They see, you know, the, the browbeating that goes on in situations like this, and they figure, I don't need this, and and they walk away. I mean, a, a good friend of mine, Steve Milton, of course, an award-winning writer for The Spectator, wrote a, a piece that I, I think I still have someplace put away in a scrapbook about his 13-year-old son retiring from hockey because he said, you know, what that i just don't want it anymore it's not worth the aggravation and the hassle uh and he was talking about the whole environment and that's it's tragic that that's the environment that we're creating for young athletes yeah i mean we're picking on hockey here and i mean there's a reason i mean hockey was on the back of our five dollar bill you know so many of our famous canadian songs involve hockey but yeah i mean when we're talking about that that's a, a bit of a different issue that's that's part of the sort of industrialization of youth sports complex that's you know professionalization that's that's taking away the fun and putting in the results, right? Like if, if you have a child, if you're listening to this and you have a child or a grandchild who's in competitive dance or competitive swimming, like you're, you're probably nodding, nodding along a little bit to this now because yeah, like they've been driven away because, you know, your expectation is this, that you must practice this, that you give up everything else. You can't play soccer. You can't play in the band because you have to go to practice competitive dance, competitive swimming, you know, increasingly as well, you, basketball, soccer, rep programs, all of these elite academies. Yes. So we're focusing on hockey here because, you know, you're in the 905 area code, I'm in the 416 area code. And despite all of these changes, yes, hockey is still a significant part of the culture in both of these, both of these regions. So that's why we focus on it. But yes, that, that's part of the other problem too, is that not only is it becoming less accessible, um, you know, in terms of being welcoming or, or feeling open to, to other folks. It's, it's also chasing away a lot of kids because they don't want to 
be on the ice, you know, six days a week, 12 months of the year that, you know, giving up the ability to play soccer, to do other things, because it becomes all consuming, because rather than being a game where you can develop and, you know, find your own pace, that if you're not working with a skating instructor and a skills instructor by eight, nine, 10 and 11, then you're not going to catch up to kids when you're 13, 14, 15, and it's going to be less fun and you're going to be streamed out of the game. I got about a minute left, but I got to ask you about one other element of this survey that was done too. Uh, there's a much higher percentage of people that recognize these as serious problems uh, among the visible minorities, uh, and it, so and and the people that are not members of those minorities apparently think it's yeah it's it's here, but it's not a big deal. Do we even recognize the severity of it, or do we even recognize that it's happening? If you're in the hockey bubble, and I am in the hockey bubble, it can really feel like you're still in, you know, Rock Carrier's version of the hockey sweater, right? Like, you know, it's, it's still that, it's still that misty, you know, wonderful feeling of going to the rink at 6 a.m. on a Saturday and getting your Tim Hortons coffee. And it still feels like you're in that, you know, yeah, that, that commercial. But the reality is different. And I, I don't know if it's, it's just more apparent if you're looking for it or if you're looking at it or if you're aware of it. And I think that you know, with any kind of luck with these the results of these surveys and, and this discussion here um, will sort of help other people notice it as well and start to impact and affect some, some real meaningful change in the very near term. That's the end game anyway. Hopefully we'll get to that sooner than later. Sean, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks again for having me. All the best. You betcha. Sean Fitzgerald, of course, senior national writer with The Athletic. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.